of Redemption Hill. Well, uh, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's life-giving word to the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 9 today, starting in verse 1. And as you turn there, we're jumping back into uh, the series that we started the very first Sunday of the year, follow through the Gospel of Mark, looking at what it means to follow Jesus day by day. And today I want to help us think about glory and power. Glory and power. You've probably lived long enough to know that the whole world is chasing after glory and power. There's something within us that longs for glory and power. Now, the, the way that oftentimes the world thinks about this, when I say the world, the, 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 the way of thinking that's divorced from a, a divine uh, biblical point of view is that we are seeking glory primarily for ourselves, right? We want our name and lights. We want the recognition. We want the applause. We want the positions where people will look at us and, and think, oh, how great they are, which connects to then our concept of power, that if we're in a position of power, that means notoriety and, and accomplishment and, you know, uh, maybe, maybe more money, maybe the uh, ability to, to call the shots and, you know, to be important. But what we find in the scriptures is that God has a different concept, a different idea of what it should look like for us to chase after glory and power. He, he, make no mistake, God wants us chasing after glory and power, but he wants us to seek his glory, not ours. And he wants us to seek power that comes from him that is not so that we can lord it over other people in an authoritative way, but so that we have power to serve people and put other people before ourselves. This was the life of Jesus Christ. And we see these two truths in two stories that are sequential and tied together in the Gospel of Mark. And so we have quite a bit of ground to cover. I'm gonna ask you to strap on your seatbelt today in Jesus' name because we are going to cover two of my favorite stories in the Gospel of Mark, yes, in one sermon, all right? So the first, the first story on Jesus' transfiguration tells us in verses 1 through 13 that we need to see the glory of Christ. And then in verses 14 through 29, we're instructed that we should seek the power of Christ. That's where we're going in the Word today. I want to start by reading the first 13 verses for us. This is what Mark writes for us. He says this. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. 
and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them on the mountain. And a voice came out of the cloud, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it that written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. The first invitation that I want to give you today is to see the glory of Christ. See the glory of Christ. Yes, see the glory of Christ right here in this story, but know that Jesus is alive and he is still showing up and he is still inviting you to walk with him and that you can see his glory every single day. We see his glory on a unique display in a way that is unlike any other moment of his earthly life. Verse 2 tells us that Jesus goes up this mountain. He takes his three closest disciples. A lot of people call uh, Peter, James, and John Jesus' inner circle. We all have an inner circle, right? And, and so Jesus has specifically chosen Peter, James, and John, it seems, to, to, to see what sometimes the other disciples don't get to see. So, so that they'll be equipped in a different way to lead the church after his departure. And while they were there, the text says, Jesus was transfigured before them. The word transfigured will sound familiar to you in the Greek. It is metamorphaeo. Metamorphaeo. Ayo, my Greek's a little rusty, so I'm studying a little bit. You wouldn't know the difference anyway, but, but I, that's my best attempt, right? Metamorph and we think about metamorphosis, which means to change form. But the word transfigured is better here because Jesus was not transformed into a different being, but he, his, he, he, was, he was the same recognizable, identifiable Jesus that is displaying a different kind of character in essence as he is glowing more radiant than they had ever seen anything in their lives. 
Verse 3 says that his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. I mean, can you just imagine Jesus in his, in his robe, in his clothes, that, that he just starts shining in a, with a brightness, brighter than lightning, brighter than the sun. He's just beaming out the glory of God. Matthew chapter 17 in verse Two would tell us that Jesus' face shone like the sun. This was not just an apparel thing. It was a being thing, and Jesus is shining. And the form of the verb here, if you notice, it says that, that Jesus was transfigured. This is, this is cluing us in that this was not so much a self-revelation of Jesus as like, hey, Jesus, I'm gonna, Jesus is playing. Like, hey, I'm going to take these guys up the mountain and I'm going to show them who I am. More than it was God the Father, scholars would call this a divine passive verb, all right, if you're keeping score, okay? A divine passive where God the Father reveals the glory of the Son for his disciples to see who he is, who he has been all along, and who he always will be. When Peter would subsequently reflect on this in 2 Peter 1.16, he would say that they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Majesty belongs to kings. True majesty belongs to God. That's why in the Old Testament, when there would be revelations of the presence of God or the glory of God, there was always shining light, almost always shining light where people would have to cover their eyes and, and, and just pull back because God is that glorious. And on top of all of this, on top of all of this, you have what seems to be the glorified Moses and the glorified Elijah, people who died <laughs> showing up to chat with Jesus. Luke would tell us that they're chatting about his soon departure, crucifixion. And so I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but if I'm Peter, James, and John, there, there is no word to capture what I am experiencing in these moments. I believe with so many scholars that this is the fulfillment of verse 1 where Jesus says at the end of this, this teaching on the cost of discipleship where he says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now, there are a lot of interpretations and explanations for what this could be, what he could mean is crucifixion, is resurrection, final judgment, destruction of A.D., uh, Jerusalem in 7 A.D. Okay, these are in my notes if you're, if you're curious. But textually, the way Mark sequences the stories and, and even how he uses this timestamp of after six days, which he only uses one other time in chapter 14, he seems to be cluing us in that this is the moment where some, three, are not going to taste death before they see his kingdom show up in a powerful way, more powerful than they had ever experienced in their life. And Peter, 
who, like some of you, likes to talk. He's, he's like, what do I say right now? And he's, he pulls out his calculator. You know, I don't know if, if Peter had the math skills that I do, but I know I've got this much, all right? Um, three of us, Peter, James, myself, James, John, three of, three of them, Jesus, Moses, Elijah, um, tense. Like, we just can't sit here and just watch. Like, can we, like, we'll build you tents. And again, the speculation, why is this? Did he want to prolong the experience? Did, did he uh, want to, to uh, point to the booth set up in the tents as the, the people, Moses led them on a journey of a new exodus and Jesus being the, the true and greater Moses? We, we, we can't know for sure. In fact, it seems kind of irrelevant to Mark because what does Mark say? So, so humorously in verse six, it says, for he did not know what to say. <laughs> for he was terrified. He was he was beside himself, just fumbling over his words. We can imagine Peter just looking for something to say, and he says, hey, how about some dance, Jesus? But as Peter is speaking, after Peter, Peter speaks, the voice of God speaks. Verse 7 says that out of a cloud that overshadowed them, a voice came out of the cloud implying from heaven, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. For those of you who have read the gospel of Mark before or have journeyed with us from the very beginning, you will remember that in chapter one, after Mark introduces John the Baptist, he immediately tells about the baptism of Jesus where God the Father at his baptism speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And here there's a clear echo. This time, especially for the benefit of the disciples, hey, this is my beloved son, an echo of Psalm 2 which foretold of the Messiah, and God says, the Messiah will be my son. And an echo of Genesis 22, verse 2, where Abraham is instructed to sacrifice his beloved son. This is my beloved son. But this time, he doesn't repeat himself. He doesn't say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, although he still was very pleased with the son. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Oh, I pray those words hit your heart and soul this morning. We need to listen to Jesus. If Jesus is God, if Jesus is the Messiah, if Jesus is the Son of God, if every word that Jesus spoke were the very words of God, then we need to listen to him. Not just a little bit. Not just when it's convenient. Not just I'll put you on the shelf for a little while, Jesus, I'll do my own thing, and then I'll pull you back off the shelf when I really need you. Listen. Listen, listen. Did you know that in the Bible when it says listen, it doesn't mean just hear some words. It means understand what is being said to the point where it moves you in a particular kind of direction. 
That's the kind of listening that God, speaking from heaven, says to these three guys who are the closest followers of Jesus Christ. It would probably be pastorally wise for me right now to ask you, are you listening? Or maybe to ask it a better way. How well are you listening to the voice of the Son of God? Again, there, there is no word. I mean, I could kind of like spend some hours in a thesaurus this week preparing for the sermon, overwhelmed, in awe. Like, it's all of that and so many more adjectives and descriptors of what they were experiencing. So much so that Jesus, of course, understanding that when you experience something like that, you can't help but go tell some other people about it. When they're coming down the mountain, it says in verse 9, it says that he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And, And why was that? This is what we keep talking about through the gospel of Mark, what scholars call the messianic secret. Jesus, the Messiah, he's trying to keep it a secret. Why is that? Here's why. We'll say it again. It's because people, the Jewish people, disciples included, they thought that the Messiah would be a political earthly king. And so the faster the news spreads, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, Messiah, the the quicker that people, just like they do in John chapter 12, are going to try to take him by force to make him king. And Jesus says, my game plan is a little bit different than what you expect. Yes, my, my kingdom one day will be a physical kingdom with the new heavens and a new earth. But right now, I am bringing about the kingdom of God in a spiritual sense by which it will come about when I die on the cross for the sins of the world, defeat sin, Satan, and death by my death and resurrection. And so Jesus, like, Shh, be quiet, like, wait until I am risen from the dead. And, and, and that threw them off too. Because Jewish expectation of resurrection was only at the final judgment when God would return, judge the world, and then everyone would be raised. They believed in a, a physical resurrection one day, but not in time and space, not in human history. They had no expectation that Jesus would die and then three days later, rise from the dead. And then just to highlight how confused the disciples really were in these moments, there's some other things they don't understand. And so they asked Jesus this one in verse 11. They say, uh, and what about the scribes? They say that Elijah must come first. I mean, clearly seeing Elijah must have like, oh yeah, like Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6. You know, Elijah's going to come back before the day of the Lord. What's that all about, Jesus? And Jesus here, just the, the, the wise, smooth, instructive teacher that he is, does two things in his teaching in verses 12 and 13. Number one, he ties the coming of Elijah to restore everything with his suffering and death. 
Look at what he says. He says, Elijah does come first to restore all things. That's what we all want, by the way. We want the restoration of all things. We want the world the way that we know it ought to be. Perfect harmony, perfect flourishing, thriving. No, no disunity with people. No disunity between God and people. Creation, no more hurricanes slash tropical storm Elsa's anymore that rain out our movie nights, okay? Like perfect world, the, what we all want, the restoration of all things, it's coming. But it's coming not as they would expect because Jesus says, it's gonna come about because I am going to die to bring it about. That's why he follows up the question. He says, yeah, Elijah's coming, but how is it that it is written the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. So he, he immediately points them to what he just pr predicted in chapter eight, that I'm going to die. But then the second thing he does is this. He says that Elijah has come. And, and what he's doing is he's pointing in verse 13, he says it again, Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. And if we read the gospels elsewhere, he would confirm this explicitly saying, Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist, not in a physical reincarnation, but in a, a spirit and power of Elijah as was prophesied about John the Baptist in Luke chapter one, as the angel spoke to his father, Zechariah. Now, I know I just gave you a lot in a short amount of time. But the, but the point... <laughs> The point, and by the way, the sermons are online and the notes are online, so you can go back and like, hey, what did, what did Pastor Daniel say? And Elijah and John the Baptist and glory and suffering. And here's the point. The point of this story is that Jesus is glorious and Jesus is God. Jesus is glorious and Jesus is God. The transfiguration served as what scholars call a theophany, a, a, a manifestation of the divine being. And so, so this is a, a, a revelation, a display, a manifestation, call it what you want, that Jesus is divine, that Jesus is fully God. God alone is glorious. And no one would disagree with that in Israel. But then number two, the transfiguration confirmed the identity of Jesus as Messiah, both with the presence of these messianic figures in Elijah and Moses, but then also the voice from heaven, which also confirmed his identity as the son of God. And this doesn't even mention all of the allusions to the superiority of Jesus as the true and greater Moses, who is in fact coming down the mountain to lead his people on a true and greater exodus to a true and greater promised land. I hope that just gets your heart beating a little faster today that if you follow Jesus, this is the God that you follow. And there's just a little bit more at least that I want to share with you this morning. In all of this story, Jesus is glorious, Jesus is God. It's interesting that the text, and maybe this helps you lean in just a little bit more right now, okay? The text is written primarily from the perspective of the disciples. What the disciples are experiencing, what the disciples are saying, how they're responding, the questions that they're asking. 
Why was that? It was so that this event would serve as an unforgettable reminder that their rabbi, their teacher was nothing less than God himself. This, look, look, here's the point. This wasn't just like, hey, Jesus went up to pray. God showed up, sent down Moses and Elijah for Jesus' sake. And oh, the disciples just happened to be there. That's what I'm trying to say. This was no doubt strategic by God the Father to show the radiance of his glory in the person of Jesus Christ, his son, as Hebrews chapter one, verse three says, and to have Peter, James, and John there for the moment. You say, well, why, Tanner? Because they needed to see his glory for the same reasons that you need to see his glory and the reasons that I do. This is so sweeping. This is so life transforming. There is, when you see the glory of God, when you see the glory of Christ, It changes everything that is in front of you. That's not hyperbolic preacher talk. It's, it's, it's right here in the middle of the gospel. Why? Because the highest highs and the lowest lows are in front of them. I don't know if anyone's suffering today. But I'm telling you, in this world, you will have trouble. Jesus said it in John 16. And we are going to face some suffering and brokenness in this life. Most specifically for the disciples, they're hearing their, their Messiah, their rabbi, their mentor, their teacher. He's going to the cross. He's going to be crucified soon. They're going to face the most difficult moment of their life. And they needed a vision of glory to sustain them, to keep them moving forward. Listen, whatever you're facing today, whatever it is, God loves you. God cares for you. God wants to show you who he is and that vision of who he is will keep you moving forward. But thank God, it's not just for the, the difficulties and the suffering. It's not just for the lowest lows, it's for the highest highs as well. Why? Because they were not only going to face their greatest difficulty, they were also going to receive their greatest assignment. Hey, take the message that I've given to you and go give it to everybody on the stinking planet. That's a pretty big assignment. And what's going to move them? What's going to empower them? What's going to get them to wake up at whatever time God says wake up? I've encouraged you to ask him about that. And I hope you're asking him about that. And if not, I'm going to ask you to ask him about that again. Okay, but whatever time it is that you're getting up, that God encourages you to get up in the morning, what's going to help you wake up and live for him is his glory. Because his glory tells us that he's in control that he has all power. And we need it every single second of our lives, whether we acknowledge it or not. And this is what we see immediately following their trip down the mountain. 
We're invited not only to see the glory of Christ, but we are invited to seek the power of Christ. And I'm just hitting my knees more often. I'm just hitting my knees more often for for God the Holy Spirit to light up a people known as Redemption Hill Church, Pastor Tanner included, to see more of his glory and to seek more of his power. Look at verses 14 through 29. And when they came to the disciples down the mountain, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, unable to speak. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and become rigid, most certainly epileptic seizure conditions here. So I asked your disciples to cast out the demon that is causing him to not be able to speak and to have these seizures. And as we'll read on in the chapter, not be able to, 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 to hear it as well. But your disciples, they were not able to cast it out. And Jesus answered them in verse 19, Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, that is the demon, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, isn't it interesting that Jesus doesn't just, like he's in total control here. Total control. He doesn't like, hey, the demon's making him do all this. I gotta like cast him out right now. Like he starts to have a sidebar conversation with the, 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 the kid's dad. He asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father answered from childhood. And then he gets us a more clear picture of the nature of the situation and the destructive intentions of the demon. It says, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can All things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw a crowd come, came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, Come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus, parenthetical note from Pastor Tanner here who is called the resurrection and the life, took him by the hand. And lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, 
Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. See the glory of Christ. Seek the power of Christ. This story clearly tells us that there is a boy with a problem that meant there was a dad with a problem and he went to those that he thought could maybe help him out, help them out. Because word was traveling that, hey, you know, Jesus and his disciples, they have the power to cast out demons. So if your boy has a demon, then go to Jesus' disciples because they can, they can probably help you out. But, but we don't know how many tried, if it was one of the disciples, if it was four of the disciples, if it was all nine. Hey, Philip, you know, you take a shot. You know, Bartholomew, why don't, hey, how about Levi? Can you, make, can you do anything with this demon? Like maybe all nine of them try to cast out the demon. We don't know. They, we just know that they all fail. And now the, the scribes are arguing with them about it. They're probably chastising them. The scribes weren't super fans of Jesus or the disciples. So they were probably, you know, maybe taunting them or whatever. We don't know. But, but. The point is that Jesus comes down. He, he hears the commotion and, and he's like, what's going on? And the boy's father steps up and he says, I have a problem. I have a problem that needs some power. The idea of ability and power run all throughout this story. Verse 18, it says the disciples were not able to cast out the demon. Verse 22, the father says, if you can, in other words, to Jesus, if you have the ability, help us, have compassion, please. And Jesus, using the very words of the father, says, if you can, in other words, if I have the ability, all things are possible to the one who believes that I have the ability. And then, of course, the story ends in verse 29, where Jesus says, this kind cannot be cast out by anything but prayer. And I, and I know what you may be thinking right now, because sometimes we read the Gospels in this kind of way of like, uh, oh, that was Jesus. Oh, Pastor Tanner, you're a pastor, you went to seminary, you have a degree or two in this stuff. Like, um, that was Jesus. And the implication is, Jesus was God and God does God things like, you know, people used to say when Steph Curry was coming of age and like, Steph gonna Steph, well, Jesus gonna Jesus and that's just what Jesus does. And so if you're thinking like that, let me just give you a few counter arguments to pull you into the text a bit more. Okay, number one, yes, Jesus was fully God, but Jesus was also fully man. And the reason that Jesus was anointed at his baptism was, was to show, with the Holy Spirit, was to show that everything that he was doing in his earthly ministry was through the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but implied here is what? The disciples could have, but they did not. And the third counter-argument I would give you is Holy Spirit. When someone chooses to follow Jesus, God sends his Holy Spirit to dwell within us. And now the very power of God empowers us to live the life that Jesus calls us to live. 
And so if God is in you, then God going to do God things and spirit going to spirit. But, but what about this statement? Because this is really what's going on in the story. The first truth that I would just encourage you to write down in your journal or in your phone or whatever, okay, is that Jesus lived with a different level of power. Jesus lived with a different level of power. Clearly, Jesus had a different level of power. He could cast out the demons where the disciples could not cast out the demons, but it's implied that they could cast out the demons if they had maybe a different kind of prayer life and power. And you say, well, that makes me nervous. Like, I haven't heard that, or no one's taught me that, that, you know, we can operate with different levels of power. I most certainly believe that is true. And here's why. A static view of the Holy Spirit by which the Spirit just kind of does the same thing all the time through the people. And once we receive the Spirit that, you know, that's all that, you know, we're just going to have this one level of power, whatever the the level of power is when we're saved, like that's what we're going to operate with for the rest of our life. Okay, guess what? That is unbiblical. It's unbiblical. And it's not only from this story in Mark chapter nine, but we can go to other texts where, you know, Romans 12, and he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And he's saying that when you exercise your gift, do it in the proportion of whatever God is giving you in that moment. But if that doesn't convince you, what about degrees of glory? What about as we behold, uh, this is so fitting to the sermon, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, sorry, it's not on the screen, but verse 17, it says that beholding the glory of Christ, we are being transformed into the same image. What is the same image? The same image of Jesus from one degree of glory to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And so like, maybe you read that and you think like, oh, I'm just gonna become more fruitful and holy, like love, joy, peace, patience, kind of goodness, faith, and generous, self-control, like humility and wisdom. And it's like, yes, it's all of that. God, transform our hearts to bear more fruit for you that are degrees of glory. But if I'm not mistaken, the same image of Jesus, he was not just a person with character. He did stuff. He, he moved in ministry. He stepped out in faith. And so why would we not expect that this spirit who not only produces the fruit of holiness, but also gives us gifts to serve people and build them up and advance the mission of God, that he would also move us from one degree of glory to the next as far as our effectiveness in ministry. I mean, you should pray for your pastors. Listen, I mean, some of you probably think like, hey, Pastor Tanner can improve his teaching gift, right? You're absolutely right. Pray for me. I'm trying to go from one degree to the next. Hopefully I've gotten a little bit better over the years. You should have seen me at 18, man. Wow. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then real quick, Luke 11:13. 13. Jesus says, pray for the greatest gift, the gift, ask your good father who gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. We've taught him this before. It's not a one-time thing. It's an everyday thing. If you actually need the spirit to do anything good in your life, which I would argue, by the way, anything that you do that is good is a result of the Holy Spirit working in your life. I don't think you can genuinely pray and not pray implicitly for more of God's spirit. So that's why I believe that there are levels of power. And I don't know about you, but I'm just saying, God, I just want more. I need more, God. There is so much in front of me, God, that I feel so inadequate for. 
that I feel like I've failed so many times, Lord, and I, I need your power as I'm talking to people about Jesus, as I'm serving others and putting others before myself, as I'm showing up to, to meet a, a practical need of mercy in your name, as I'm praying over someone to be healed, God, would you heal them this time? Because last time it didn't happen. Jesus lived with a different level of power. And he tells us, he tells us, power comes from the place of prayer. Power comes from the place of prayer. I want to give you four realities, truths that we see here from this story about prayer and it delivering the power of God in our lives. And I'll try to do it uh, rather briskly, all right? So number one, prayer consecrates our hearts. Prayer consecrates our hearts. We saw in verse 15 that Jesus comes down the mountain and it says that the people were greatly amazed. Grant Osborne scholar would tell us that this word greatly amazed means that they were trembling with astonishment that verged on alarm. He says that it's likely that not only were, were Jesus' clothes still radiating glorious light, but he himself, just like Moses had to come down the mountain in Mount Sinai in Exodus and cover his face, that Jesus was still radiating the glory of God. They're amazed. They're taken back. They can't believe what they saw. But where did that come from? Why, are we, why am I using the word consecrate? To consecrate means in a sacred condition. It means to be set apart. Jesus was set apart. He was ready for the work in, in the, the valley and not just to cast out a demon, but to cast out sin out of our hearts when he would die on the cross. Receive it today. But, but, but where did that come from? Verse two of chapter nine. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. What was Jesus doing on the mountain? He was praying to his father. And this is not speculation. It's captured for us right in the Bible. Luke chapter 9, verses 28 and 29. Jesus went up onto a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Here's a, here's a, here's a, new, here's a new step for you in your walk with God if you're not there yet. God has given us prayer, not for him to, to give us the opportunity for, for, for him to change all the stuff in our lives. Primarily, God wants to see things change in our lives. And he says, ask me for anything that you wish, all right? But, but when we pray, it's not so much about God changing our circumstances, but it's about God changing us. Prayer consecrates our hearts. Number two, prayer clarifies our vision. In verse 19, when Jesus comes down and he, and he sees that they can't cast it out, he says what? Oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? How long am I to be with you? What is Jesus doing here? He's doing what the psalmists do. And throughout the psalm so many times, he is lamenting. 
He's, he sees the problem and he, and he turns to God in a prayer and, and, he, and he asks, he's asking boldly that there would be changes implied here. He's, he's lamenting, how long is this gonna be this way? And why is that? I love teaching on this. It's because Jesus saw the world better than anyone. He saw the way that it should be and he saw the way that it is and the gap in between is what brings out compassion of our hearts. And where, where does that come from? When, when you spend time in the, the glorious light of God's presence through prayer, light brings sight. Spiritual wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of him, Ephesians chapter one. If you want clarity of vision, get to the place of prayer. If you want power for living, get to the place of prayer. This is all about gaining God's heart. And then number three, prayer increases our faith. The role of faith is mentioned in at least 27 miracle accounts throughout the gospels. We see it here. Jesus says in verse 19, oh, faithless generation. The issue is, is faith. It's believing that, that God can and will in operating in that faith, no matter what it is that we're doing. You may not be casting out a demon this week, but there's something else that God's gonna call you to do. You might cast out a demon. But, but, but more than likely, it's gonna be other things where God's calling you to step out in faith, to serve people, to love people, to care for people, to take someone a meal, maybe that, that, that it just has a need or whatever, or pray for someone that's hurting. That requires some faith. In verses 23 and 4, some of the most precious verses in the Bible, I love this. Jesus says to the Father, if you can, like, do you know who you're talking to? But the Father just so sincerely says what so many of us feel on the regular. I believe, help my unbelief. I mean, just, just in your sincerity of heart, would you just go to God more often and say, God, like I've got some faith, but give me more faith. I believe, but help me, help, help my unbelief, help the places where I don't believe. In other words, I have this much faith, but God, I want this much faith. I want all the faith that it requires to see you move in these moments. That is such a valid way to pray. Help our unbelief. And then as prayer increases our faith that releases the power of God, not all the time, it's not always about the level of faith that the, 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 the miracle worker has or the, the deliverance person has or the, the faith of the father or the people of the faith in the crowd, okay? Like sometimes God just sovereignly says, you got zero faith, you got zero faith, you got zero faith. I'm still showing up so you'll know who I am. No one like that? Amen? Amen! But so many times, it's connected to faith. Why? Because we're saying, God, I trust you. We're depending on you in this moment. I can't, you can. So God, increase our faith, which will then embolden our actions. Prayer emboldens our actions. As faith rises, it causes us to step out, to move out, to take risks, to do whatever it is that God is calling us to do in that moment, in the Kairos moments, in the conversations where we get to talk about Jesus and represent Jesus and give tiny little pictures of the coming kingdom of God where no one will suffer anymore and no one will be thirsty or hungry or hurting any longer. And so I'll just close with 
this. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 4 has some people that are talking junk and noise about who he is. They were known as super apostles. He called them super apostles. <laughs> and, and at the end of that chapter, he says, hey, uh, I am going to come back to you in Corinth if, if God wills, if that's what God wants, and he makes a way. Uh, I'm coming back, and I'm going to find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. And then he says a few words that absolutely rock my heart and put me to my knees. He says, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but power. We have a great assignment before us that will sh surely be worked out in 1,000 different ways. But whatever it looks like for you to follow Jesus into your workplace, into your neighborhood, into your conversations and your relationships to represent him by your actions and your words. Listen, I know that what we are going to need in those moments is power. And so I wonder if, if just as we wrap up our time, as, as Pedro and the, the team come up to lead us in a song of response. I wonder if you would just open your, your heart first and, and maybe even just open your hands as a, a sign of receptivity and humility to say, God, I, I, I need your power. God I, God, I want to see your glory, but God, I want to more readily and frequently seek your power. And in the place of prayer, I want to spend time with you. I want to see your glory, and I want to move out as you lead me day by day. Because listen, this is, this is the, the point of the message, and it's coming to you in the form of a prayer. If we would just pray this week, this valid any and every week, God, move our hearts Pray this for yourself. Pray this for your friends in our church. Pray this for people in other churches because we ain't selfish around here. We want to see the kingdom of God coming through all of Jesus' followers and Jesus' churches. Listen, God, move our hearts to see your glory and to seek your power. And so if you would just, in these moments, you talk to God. Maybe you're like me and you feel so inadequate and, and so... Uh, just, just not sure of yourself and if you have what it takes. And, and that's a great reminder that we don't, which makes us turn to God and remember that he does. And so would you cry out to God in your own words as I pray for us and then lead us in prayer. Father, we ask that you would move our hearts to see your glory, to seek your power. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus.